morning. You're listening to The Secret Ingredient on CFRU 93.3 FM. We're located in Guelph, which is on traditional Adirondack territory. And I'm Danica. I'm Alyssa. Good morning. And we're really excited to be here with you today. Um, we've got a really great treat for you. Yeah, um, we've been we've been uh, dropping hints about the practice of Pablo Helguera on this show <laughs> for a couple years now, and uh, we've we've managed to get him to join us. Uh, he's a very busy guy. He's a he's an artist who works in many different media, but he's also the um, the director of. Um, adult programs and academic programs in the Department of Education at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. So, busy person. Um, but let me go back and tell you a little bit about him. Um, Pablo Helguera is the creator of the School of Pan American Unrest, and I mention that because it's probably the largest socially engaged project uh, ever in, in the, the world. history of time. Uh, it uh, took place from 2001 to 2010, and it traveled uh, from each the most northerly tip of the continent of, North, of um, uh, America to the very most southerly tip. So North and South America were brought together um, through a series of in- events and, and pedagogical processes. Um, Helgera is also the author of several books, including the Pablo Helgera Manual of Contemporary Art Style from 2005, which offers uh, some advice on positioning yourself both physically and socially at art openings. I think I remember a chessboard, <laughs> chessboard that you can position yeah. yourself on, see which character you are. Yeah, he's also published a beautiful novel called The Boy Inside the Letter in 2008. Mm-hmm. Um and art tunes, one through three, I believe, at this point. there's I think there's three different um, versions of art tunes. And these are New Yorker-style uh, cartoons that uh, take the pee out of the art world. <laughs> <laughs> my, f- my favorite one is this person. I, I quote this often, actually. There's a person in an audience. Um, oh, yeah. And at kind of like a question and answer period at a lecture, and the person, the line is, "I just want you and the audience to acknowledge that I exist." <laughs> yeah. They're really apt. The, the, lis- the yeah, the listener sort of speaking up to to engage the the speaker in a question. In a question, yeah, and it's a sta- <laughs> yeah. it's more of a statement about his own his yeah. own positionality. So yeah, Pablo is joining us today from uh, from New York, and we're really thrilled to have him here. We thought we would start things off with uh, some of the, just to showcase some of his talents. Uh, Pablo is an opera singer, professionally trained opera singer, and he's recorded a number of um, pieces of music. And what did you choose today? I chose Toto Cambia um, uh, recorded. Oh, that's my favorite. Live. Is it great? Yeah. Okay. And this is at the closing of the event of the Libreria Don Celes in New York City, which is a project Pablo's been working on. Yeah. Involving we might books. be we might able be to have a chance later. to talk about that later. Great. Okay. So here you go. Toto Cambia. superficial cambia también lo profundo cambia el modo de pensar cambia todo en este mundo cambia el clima con los años cambia el pastor su rebaño y así como todo cambia que yo cambie no es extraño 
Toto Cambia um, by Pablo Helguera, and we're really excited to have Pablo on the line. Pablo, are you there? Yes. Wonderful. Good morning, Pablo. Thank you Good so morning. much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. You're, you've been a bit of a specter on all of our shows we've talked. <laughs> I think we've probably <laughs> talked about your, your work uh, in maybe 25% of the episodes that come up. So That's true. This yeah. uh in particular, your excellent handbook, Education for Socially Engaged Art, has been a really good touchstone for us. But we've also played your music on the show. Mm-hmm. We played it maybe last year when I think one of us, two of us, got your CD in the mail, which was really amazing. And then Alyssa had gotten some letters as part of the Parable oh, Conference yeah. last yep. November, so we talked about you then. And um, you had written some short stories, too, and we had an, an episode about story writing as an art practice. So I think... 
it's really interesting that we are, we have you here on the show today. It's it's momentous, well, it's maybe. It's a pleasure to be to be finally present in other ways. But I'm very flattered. <laughs> a little bit more embodied, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, this it actually really nods to the way that. Um, the many textures that your art practice takes. And um, I think traditionally we're used to kind of a historical separation between art and life, that art is something that is found in galleries or um, in specific places. It's a practice that is only for a few instead of for many. Um, but I, I, you really don't divide the two at all. Um, I think, was that your daughter that you hear at the end of Todo Cambia in the background? Um, yeah, she was one of them. It was a public event. It was a closing of Libreria Donceles mm. back in 2013, and we did this public uh, uh, concert performance uh, uh, with uh, different kinds of protest music, including that famous Todo Cambia, uh, Everything Changes mm. song uh, written by Julio Numhauser, but made famous by Mercedes Sosa, a famous Chilean singer. It's so great. And uh, your daughter has been a part of your performances as well. And um, we're, it's interesting to think about how you're bringing those two things together. So we wanted to ask you, what's important about bringing art and life together? Well, yeah, indeed. I mean, I think, um, I think that to me, in my case, and probably in the case of many other artists, uh, Life uh, basically filters into your work, whether you like it or not. Uh, and uh, in my case, it, it was not really an intentional um, thing, but it's, it's it's something that really stemmed out of uh, need, out of survival. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, you know, when I started um, uh, my career as, as an artist, when I was an art student, I felt I wanted to express these big ideas, right? Right. Uh, it was a very romantic uh, kind of uh, impulse of really talking about the big issues of life, you know, when I had really had very little experience with life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, and then I very quickly started encountering really big d dilemmas uh, between what I was making in the studio and then the real-life experiences I was having. Uh, not that being in the studio is not a real-life experience, but uh, essentially, like, dealing with... Uh, um, transitioning from one country to another because I'm from Mexico. I was I was at that time in Chicago, um, dealing with cultural issues, dealing with uh, um, political issues, um, and and uh, slowly all that started, um, you know, basically appearing in the things that I was making. Mm -hmm. um, and I know I I found that by working in different mediums, um, I was suddenly. While I was being challenged by the medium itself, uh, these opened up possibilities of expression and of dealing with subjects that otherwise I would not perhaps deal with. For example, when I was do doing performance work, um, or when I started doing performance work, um, I started uh, becoming interested in, in, in films and in projections, and I started using family film, home, home film, mm. and, uh, and photographs, you know. And I would have probably never used that material had I not um, basically entered the, the area of performance. Mm. You know? So when so you're moving away from these kind of traditional mediums, then or medias, excuse me, then you, you naturally bring in the histories of those other media. 
Yeah, I mean, essentially, I mean, you, when you enter into a, uh, or you're learning a medium, right, you, you, are, you, you basically have to understand the conventions of that medium. You know, so I was making painting, and so basically I was studying art history and, and painting and the history of painting, and then you learn, like, you learn how to, how Titian painted, and then mm-hmm. you learn how, um, how these or that other artist uh, made their works, and then you start making your own work, you know? Yeah. Um, but but you're always you you tend to be conditioned by the conventions of the medium, and then when you suddenly change into a completely different medium, um, it, I think it's really interesting to pay attention to what you are doing and how you are using it in an intuitive way, and what what are the things that you actually incorporate in it. Um, you know, we might be terrible at actually mastering the, the medium itself, but but interesting things happen. You know, and that that actually happened to me with performance. You know, mm-hmm. uh, to me, performance became, of course, a, a form to include narrative in in ways that that uh, that were not possible in drawing or print making or or other other related mediums. Mm-hmm. You know? And um, and then uh, I mean, then, and of course, then you you confront other challenges like how do you deal with the autobiographical, for example? You know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and that was one thing that that very quickly. You know, um, I, I encountered with with performance because because you're driven to narrative. Then then of course you it, it can it can ha- the danger is that it can become just confessional. Right. You know? Yeah. That you be, that you basically go in there and just like basically are talking about your life. So I, I had to like be very careful about you know what is it that you're really saying and um, and how can you do it in a way that doesn't become like this self indulgent kind of. Uh, um, activity just for yourself, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's a delicate balance between bringing yourself to the public space, but then also negotiating how to interact with the other people that are in that space. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So you really, so it, so it became, it became, I became more and more aware of the, of the viewer, the participants, the, the individual that, that basically is present. And I wanted to refocus my attention to that particular, mm-hmm. to, to that individual, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if it goes, it starts going away from this kind of narrative that oh, we know really well in art of the, the kind of genius artist who has all these amazing ideas towards something that is a little bit more dynamic and a little bit um, acknowledging the autobiographical, but also acknowledging it in con- the context of others. Well, yeah, I mean, yes, we do. We do come from a tradition, and maybe a tendency uh, among some artists that um, say that they just do their work and they don't really care what people think about it. You know, mm-hmm. um, and I mean, I understand that sense of independence and uh, and um, freedom that one may want to pursue with their work. You know, but but I, I just don't believe that that's why we make art. You know, we make art to communicate. You know, and and even if you are locked in a room and you're making something, you're still in conversation, even with the people that influenced you, that that gave you the language, that uh, that were there before you, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it's 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 it, the solipsist uh, attitude in art. I find it untenable. You know, I mean, I don't think. Um, I mean, I don't think what, there's even a point of making anything if nobody else is going to see it. I mean, you might want to make it for yourself, and you are an eccentric outsider artist, perhaps. And but uh, I don't think that's really what what really um, constitutes the the core uh, 
kind of uh, emission in in art making. Mm. You know, it's, it's about communi- it's about communication. You yeah, know? that that drive to reach outward. Um, I feel like that that's grounded maybe in in your your beginnings at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. You know, you, you did this beautiful interview with Helen Reed where you talk about um, you were working a little bit at the museum, and you would cross the bridge that connected the the school to the museum, and you'd be in your dirty painting clothes in the classroom, and then you'd get get ready to go to this other environment. And um, you're now an educator and an artist, and. Uh, in that same interview, you talk a little bit about how both draw upon the embodiment of process, on dialogue, on exchange, and on that intersubjective communication and on, and on human relationships. Um, so it it seems like that's played a really important role in your in your practice and in, in terms of your development as well. Um, so we wanted to ask a little bit about that learning process too. Um, is this learning? An education process that's built into your your own practice through a framework of self-education. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, basically, I mean, if you if you study education or you 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 read education theory a lot, I mean, it's it's uh, one of the first things that you that you know or that you that is that is clear is that first of all, as, as human beings, we never stop learning. You know. There's never really uh, a moment in our lives where we don't learn anymore. And when, when, whenever you're not learning, you're not basically alive anymore, you know? Um, it's, um, this is why there's adult education. This is why there's, like, uh, things for, for seniors, people at every age and age stage of life. And, you know, we, we create formal education for, uh, for people at a certain age, you know, like, a, like a kids and all that, you know? And... But the fact that the formal education theoretically ends at a certain moment or stage in our lives doesn't mean that we stop learning, you know. So I think as, as an as artist, it's really important to always um, keep oneself uh, aware and awake and, uh, and learn how to listen and then pay attention to what's happening around the world, you know. And, uh, and I think that uh, every artist is doing that uh, actively or... Or, or explicitly or, or implicitly, you know, and um, and I, to me, the the job of an artist really has a lot to do with with learning about the world and 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 observing and paying attention and noting what you what you're observing and then reacting on that. And this is why, for me, it, the the part of uh, being an artist that I really enjoy the most is uh, moments like what I'm doing right now, for example, which is really more like read, doing a lot of reading and a lot of writing. You know, and and or researching subjects that that interest me, uh, things that I have been interested in doing for a while, and then kind of initiating uh, what sometimes is a very slow process of um, of kind of maybe solving a puzzle mm-hmm. or or uh, or being like a detective. You know, <laughs> where you uh, where you basically find a problem or identify a problem, and then try to go to the root of it and go descend into like darkness you know trying to figure out what it what it is about and for that you really need to use everything you know you know uh and uh and, and to use all your abilities to kind of pe- pe- and piece it apart and then put it back together you also pe- yeah. i was just going to say that you also kind of need a hypothesis to start with a, some kind of a hunch that uh that this will be of interest to multiple people um going back to your your 
comment that when you're in the studio, you're not just creating work for yourself. You 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 have to have this sense, this confidence that there's something that might be more broadly uh, applicable to to a, a sensation or a, an expression that you're researching. Well, yes, you're right. I think. I mean, maybe uh, I, I I don't know how a scientist works, um, and I really couldn't speak to that. But um, but I do think that uh, there's always a moment where you say this looks interesting. Uh, there's something that needs to be kind of um, figured out yep. around this, this issue, or people are not really looking at this carefully, mm-hmm. and maybe I should like maybe give it a try, you know? Um, and then, and then that's, that usually becomes the starting moment of, a, um, of maybe an artistic investigation, mm-hmm. let's mm-hmm. say, you know? So uh, what are you reading right now? What are you trying to figure out? Um, well, right now, I am very interested in the short-form phrase. Um, because of my maybe indecent exposure in social media, <laughs> extreme exposure to social media, you know, I have really come to, um, to really become interested in how, like, one tweet, one phrase, you know, becomes viral and becomes interesting to people, you know? Mm-hmm. And... Um, and, uh, and because, you know, I, I do these, these cartoons that usually are, you know, one phrase, one line, and then like the drawing. I've been asking myself, you know, what is it that just, that, uh, that w- what is, in this era of the soundbite, you know, what makes a soundbite work, you know? Nice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and to me, the, uh, I mean, the, the, because of our attention span, because of uh, the way we work culturally today, you know, we, we are very, str- very responsive to those one-line comments, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with the one-line comment is, of course, that it's it can be very uh, superficial. It can be just uh, very um, kind of uh, limited, you know. And but it can be so beautiful too. Like um, Lydia Davis's short stories are some of my favorites, and they can only be one line and say so much with that one line. Yeah, exactly. And there, there was a French writer. Um, uh, his name was Fenelon, uh, who in the in the in the turn of the century. Um, more than a hundred years ago, he started writing these one-line no. He called them one-line novels. <laughs> uh, That's awesome. And uh, it basically, um, he was he got a job as an editor. He was he was really not known as a writer at all, but he was kind of like friends of all important writers of the time in Paris, you know. And um, he uh, had a job in writing the police blotter. You know, of of the local newspaper. Mm. You know, and and uh, I don't know if you have read the yeah. the, the blotter. Yeah. But you, usually, it's like a woman was thrown out of the window <laughs> by her husband. Yep. You know, uh, or her. You know, a dog. You know, like you know, I don't know, like a ate a uh, a mouse in the corner of like this or that place. Like so, very strange, unusual, inexplicable situations. You know. But but um, condensed into one really gr- kind of line. gruesome or cruel sentence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, and um, so anyway, so so uh, Felix Fenion uh, basically was writing these uh, three line novels. You know, or he called them three line novels, but essentially it was like the three little lines that you learn 
about something crazy that happened in your neighborhood, you know? Mm-hmm. This, uh, a man was, was caught stealing like a thousand lipsticks, you know, and stucking, sticking them in, their ha- in this car. Like, you ask yourself, like, why was this person doing that? You know, what, what, what are the, the situations that could have led to a situation like this, you know? And I find that really fascinating, and, and uh, it, it's, it's a great deal of things to the reader that you can do. Mm-hmm. That you can offer to you know, there's in in Spanish language there's a very famous one line short story by uh, Augusto Monterroso who's a uh, Guatemalan writer it's called the dinosaur you know and uh, and the only what the only what well, the, the story says is the goes is basically when he wake when he woke up the dinosaur was still there. <laughs> that's the story you know? <laughs> it says it so, all that's um, it says it all right I mean like it, it, it creates a plot it creates characters it creates mm-hmm. attention it crea- I mean it's everything in, in one single line so it's one of the most famous uh, one line pieces in in Spanish language you know and we make reference to that all the time you know mm-hmm. it has become a kind of a, uh, a a reference you know like when he woke he was still there you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, or or like you know, we talk about that about politicians. When we woke up, you know, the politicians was Stephen know, Harper was still there. Or whatever. But anyway, so I I am interested now in the aphorism, and uh, and mm-hmm. I'm writing a book about uh, aphorisms for artists. Um, and uh, so I've been working on that for the last two months or so. Pablo, can you define aphorism for our listeners? It's it's a term that's not super familiar, but it's something we should all know. An aphorism is essentially a uh, a, a thought that is expressed in about one line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's it's essentially you also can ca- call it a uh, maxim. Yeah, you know, like it's, it's like a quotation. It's it's a, it's an important quotation that. You know, when you buy a book about famous quotations, you know, many of these are aphorisms. Like one line uh, thought that is, uh, that tells you something about our lives, you know? It's maybe a teaching tool, too. There's there's kind of like a a lesson summed up in that one sentence. Yeah, it it does have a moralistic quality. And for example, one of the most famous um, aphorism writers in history was a... uh, a uh, French nobleman, the Baron de La, La Rochefoucauld, uh, who was kind of a um, part of a, kind of a royalty or, or like kind of the well, he was he was a, uh, a duke, you know, and he wrote these little book of maxims. You know, he, I mean, he was a military man. He was a uh, was a wealthy nobleman who basically wrote these one-line thoughts, you know, and uh, in the 17th century. These really became uh, very highly popular, you know, and uh, and it was kind of a an obligatory thing later for for younger people to to read uh, La Rochefoucauld's <laughs> maxims, you know, you know, and and they're fantastic, you know, um, but you know they it, this we, this goes all the way back to uh, to Seneca and uh, and uh, and the well, the, the the Latin uh, writers. Um, and uh, and even the Greeks, you know, they, these are basically one, like well, like um, uh, single line thoughts that uh, that we can really reflect on for hmm. a long time, you know. And just because they're brief, it doesn't mean that they're not, um, um, you know, meaty or or uh, or or substantial, you know. 
So, so your research into aphorisms is ex- exploring, in a way, the the malleability, the changeable body of art as language or art through language. Um, well, I, I I feel you know honestly that a lot of the work that I've done in the past has really have to do a lot with the relation between the visual and the literary. Yes, you know? yeah. And, and you know, in the past, I've done things like using fiction to into the visual realm. Like like one time, I I made a, a an, an exhibition of uh, fourteen fictional artists. You know, mm. without telling anybody that yeah. that all the work was fiction. You know. Um, because I was basically using a literary um, device, you know. Uh, I was basically kind of like almost writing maybe like a like a play or a novel uh, on, in the galleries. And what I was very interested in is how we um, discussed or talked about certain kinds of artists, you know, and how we, we understood them verbally or, or literally, you know. Mm-hmm. So you would, you would see a piece by a uh, supposedly a Korean woman artist, so young Kim, you know, who would make like uh, installations in trees, you know, and then uh, there will the the interpretation. And here's where my education background comes too. You know, it was really important. So it will talk about like where she was from and yeah. how yeah. when she was growing up, trees were very important. Nature is very important for her, and and then she could just make these installations and blah blah. blah. And uh, it's also an observation of how the art world operates. You know, like if you're a collector and you walk into a gallery. Then some somebody's always behind you, kind of telling you the story. You know, mm-hmm. like oh, you know, she's this Korean artist who's really into trees, and she woke up and her, uh, uh, she 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 was she grew, she grew up in a farm and blah blah. You know. Yeah, it becomes more about the information around the object than the object itself. Well, that's that's part, one of my contentions. You know that that that, that our works are that the process of valuing a work is is a verbal. It's entirely kind of a verbal process that, you know, might depart from the thing that you're looking at. Right, yeah. It's, it's, it's constructed completely outside of the work, you know? Hmm. It's, it's about the didactic about panels and the biographies and the... The, the artist the artist's statements. It, it, it's, it's a verbal process. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it makes... It, 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 it's what makes people feel that they understand it. Absolutely. Quote, you know? Yeah. You know, Pablo... Uh, we're wondering if we can maybe take. We usually do a little bit of news at, at, at the half hour, and so I was. We were thinking we might play a song and then do a tiny little news snippet, and then get back to the interview with you. Is that okay? Absolutely. Thank Great. You. Okay, so we're going to play Nan Merriman's "Après un rêve" at Pablo's request.
That was Nan Merriman singing A Prison Rev um, by Foray and Duparc. Um, that was at the request of Pablo Helguera, who we have on the line all the way from New York City. Um, it is now time, time for a very special time, the corkboard. <laughs> this is the moment in the show where we recommend one one or two things that are happening close to us in Guelph or the Toronto area that we think that you should rec- you should check out. Um, yeah, so this Friday. This Friday, first up, Dodo Lab is doing a project with people of Goodwill Events at Heritage Hall. We've talked a little bit about this project of post-commodity. Um, Dodo Lab, uh, this project is centered on an heirloom angel that may or may not be capable of performing some minor miracles brought from its former home in Mexico to its new home here in Canada. So from 4 till 8, um, we'll be collecting miracles at the hall so you can bring your hopes and wishes and dreams. Um, and then at 8 o'clock there will be a, a party and uh, an activation of the miracles, I think, through by burning them, letting the smoke release into the air. Hmm. So that is at Heritage Hall at 83 Essex Street. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Um, and then we have one one recommendation for you over the summer. We're going to be taking a brief hiatus from the show. So we thought we'd leave you with a project that you could consider going to visit in Toronto. Um, Ring of Fire, which is uh, created... It's a street procession of 300 people happening in Toronto on Sunday, August 9th, along University Avenue from Queen's Park to City Hall. It's commissioned by the Art Gallery of York University, which we've we've talked a lot about on the show as one of our favorite uh, institutional gallery spaces in, in Canada. This project's curated by uh, Emily Changer, and it brings together powwow, capoeira, spoken word, and carnival mm-hmm. um, to create a kind of um, intersectional collaboration between disability dancers, uh, the Mississaugas of the New Credit, young spoken word poets, and a number of other um, arts organizations. So August 9th on a Sunday, um, we strongly encourage you to check it out. Uh, I'm just realizing this press release doesn't have a time, so we will get back to you on that one. I bet you could check the AGYU website. That's funny. Okay. So uh, we're on air with Pablo Helguera, who's visiting us by phone from New York City. Pablo, thank you again for being with us on The Secret Ingredient. Thank you, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here. It's fun to have you here. Um, during the, the musical break, you and I were just chatting a little bit about the relationship between uh, the imaginary and the real. And you've written this um, excellent handbook uh, called Education for Socially Engaged Art, a Materials and Techniques Handbook. And you talk about socially engaged art as an actual practice, which is not necessarily imagined or hy- hypothetical, but grounded in real social action. Um, so we were thinking a lot about the propositional and the imaginary and we're wondering um, what is the relationship between the real and the imaginary and uh, how do those two things play out in an, in an artistic practice? We often hear on the show that, that art is a proposal. That, yeah. That's kind of a lot of people's secret ingredient in art is that art art creates an imagined space that people um, can enter. enter um, but uh, you kind of say something. It might not ne- necessarily be counter, but we're curious to well, hear. Well, I, I, I wouldn't say. Ex- I mean, yes, certainly. I think I will, in a more traditional way, uh, you could say that art is about creating a, a world of of your own, right? But it is very important to to 
to remember that that world of your own that you are creating is based on a very real, uh, concrete reality, which is the one that you live. You know. Right. So, so the thing is that what I was t- saying to Alisa earlier was that you cannot deal with the imaginary until you deal with the real. Mm-hmm. And and the problem is that you know it's uh, to basically say that art is the, the creation of this imaginary world is to relegate art into this um, realm of. Of of, uh, of fantasy and right. fiction, yeah. you know, and I think a, a, a great deal of what we have been doing in the last twenty years as, as artists is to actually bring back, um, like Hal Foster once wrote, the return to the real. You know, mm-hmm. uh, basically um, that <coughs> art is is a reflection that might exist in in its own terms and its own conditions, but it is by no means divorced from the reality that we live every day. Mm-hmm. And if we if we have any um, if it resonates with us, if it's if, if you look at an artwork and it actually connects, you connect with it, is because you you might relate it to your own experience. You know, uh, if it's something that's so alien to the things that you know that you that you feel, you know, it, I think I think it would be very difficult to actually connect with it. Mm-hmm. You know? So, so to actually say to to a student, you know, just do whatever you want. You know, it's maybe uh, it's a recipe for disaster, right? Because you know, you're not really like helping them to to do anything other than just like basically kind of like a wander around in an empty room, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, certainly, you know, when you do that with children, you know, children have such a powerful uh, world in their minds that they they produce all those things. But you, if you notice everything they make, it's very much connected to their everyday life. You know, they're essentially creating a, re- a reconstructing or or acting on, on or that are, that is reinforcing or repeating the things that they have learned. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they make characters that they watch on TV. They they re- they, pre- they, pre- they represent the aspects of the world, etc. So, to me, um, to if you really want to engage with in the process, you really have to depart from that the thing that thing that people are thinking about that that, that, that is present in their minds. You know. And this is a very simple principle in education, you know, basically, you don't simply make people memorize information, mm-hmm. you know? but you try to, um, you make an effort to show or, 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 or explore with, with, uh, with a student, like, what, why is this information important to you in this particular moment in time, you know? Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Uh, I was reading the Education for Socially Engaged practice last night, and you have we both we both were we both pouring over it into the late and hours. quickly pulled <laughs> open the book to the to the same page, yeah, which is funny. it's the one that has the conversation matrix that you created: uh, open format, closed format, undirected subject, and directed subject. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and and kind of you're saying that. It, you you can make your own um, new ideas, but for better or for worse, this is your quote, for better or for worse, an artist must adhere to certain structures to as- attain a certain result. While experimentation can be positive, it is not necessarily to blindly reinvent ar- in art what is already an established practice in education. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think this is a really important reminder for socially engaged artists, but I think all artists in general, that we are uh, maybe inhabiting different um, genres and fields and um and we need to learn from the lessons that they've already learned maybe not replicating them completely but but learning from some of the ways of acting within those those structures yeah i mean i mean it's uh, it, we're always um 
we're always in conversation with others. You know, we we're, we no, nobody is a an island, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so you need to acknowledge that. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, and it doesn't it doesn't mean that one has to enter into therapy every time that one wants to make an artwork. You know, right. uh, or see uh, one. <laughs> but but but, uh, but I think that uh, we need to be aware of um, um, of the things that we. Um, that motivate us, you know, or, mm-hmm. or that, that 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 interest us, and um, and we need to kind of learn a little bit more about them, um, and and we, you know, we 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 delve into like art making in a process that is 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 greatly intuitive, you know, and I think that's the way it should be, but uh, our sense of criticality needs to enter into the into the process to really make us think about like you know, what am I um, what am I making? Um, how can I make it better? And uh, what is really the history of it? You know? mm-hmm. um, I'm wondering if uh, you can talk a little bit more about that the the difficulty of that conversation because we had an interview with uh, writer Jacob Brenn last week and he kind of got to the point where he's like, collaboration is really hard and it, it's really complicated and you have to know when to fight and when to give in. Um, and I think you're getting at a, a, a different kind of interaction. Um, you write about Paulo Freire in the book about, uh, in regards to collaboration, that learning and collaboration have to be um, something that is co-created and that mm-hmm. uh, an educator is kind of facilitating that open exchange. Um, but I think a lot a lot of the ways we do interact come from the the systems as you say like drawing from the the history that we are all a part of a lot of the systems that we collaborate within are hierarchical ones that are are based on a system of hierarchy built on it so um how how do we both draw from that and get beyond that system of hierarchy and collaboration well, first of all, yes, uh, collaboration, of course, is hard. But <laughs> collaboration, collaboration is hardest when you, um, when you don't, when you have a very specific goal in mind. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, basically, if I enter a collaboration saying, "Well, I'm, I'm going to collaborate with you, but I'm going to do exactly what I think we should be doing," yeah, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> then, then, that, then, then that's really completely misunderstanding what a collaboration is about. Collaboration yeah. is entering with a with a blank slate. You know. And, and really uh, letting yourself go through a process in which decisions will be made collectively, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, granted, this is not this is a very difficult thing for artists to do because you know, for centuries we we've made art just alone, you know. And and we think that collaboration is basically having assistants doing it for us, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that so that's based on a a larger history of I think everyone. There's a kind of a rampant individualism in the way that everyone interacts. So. Yeah, getting away so, from that is hard, and, and I don't want to diminish that. I mean, I think it's really important, and there's a lot of things that I really cannot collaborate with, you know, with other people. You know, I, and I, there's moments that I feel that there's stuff that I have to do that that is really that should should only involve myself, you know, and uh, and I and uh, I really don't know how what the the, the be- what would be the benefit of collaborating with someone else to do it, you know. But but here that brings us also to the to the subject of hierarchies, you know, that you mentioned, and. Um, and you know, I, I think it all. I think it has to do the the. What one needs to consider is that uh, any relationship uh, can become, um, uh, let's see, exploitive or 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 um, unequal when it's when it is dishonest, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and um, and hierarchies in themselves 
they're not necessarily a good or bad thing. You know, they're just like realities. You know, it, it is a fact that there's artists out there that, you know, have a vast knowledge who collaborate with people who know nothing about art. Mm -hmm. you know? And like, I don't think there's anything wrong in acknowledging that, you know. Uh, parenting is an example. You know, I am. I have a daughter, right? You know, she's she's um, she's a toddler, and I'm I'm like an adult. So does that mean that I cannot like that? I should just tell her, ask her to tell me what to do. You know, you know because I don't want to impose on her. You know, I mean, like there's it, things can get really absurd very quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, so I mean, it's basically like acknowledging, you know, that um, there's this other individual who has their own rights and their own. Um, individuality, and and it's something that should be respected at all times. You know, you, you, the children, including you know, they have rights and they they're individuals. You know, mm -hmm. uh, but that doesn't mean that you completely ignore the fact of who they are. <coughs> like, uh, I mean, I cannot talk to my daughter as, as if she was like an adult. You know, right? I mean, it would be a little surreal. You know, there's maybe a, an element of acknowledging not only acknowledging privilege, but acknowledging your position and the, the um, background and learnings that you bring to the table, but doing it within a context of mutual respect for the other person's rights and and skills as well. Exactly. So, um, like, I, mean, I mentioned this uh, point a million times, but um, Paulo Freire, you know, um, uh, when he uh, was asked to do this major project of um, um, uh, of literacy in in Brazil, in uh, he basically went to this group of farmers that he was going to teach, and his first uh, the first thing he told them was like you know I am I am a uh, I, I am a, a professor you know I I I know many things and uh, I happen to be to be part of these. Um, um, Plays, you know, that where where I've, I've been trained to to to, um, to learn about reading, etc. But I, I I also know that there's a lot of things that you know that I don't know. Mm -hmm. So I want I want you to think to tell ask me a question about something that I didn't think I might know, and then I'll ask you a question of something that I think you don't know. So he asked them a question about who Plato is, you know, and and such, and and then they ask him something about you know what is really the best season to plant this particular seed you know, which of course he knows absolutely nothing so his 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 um his approach was essentially of showing that the difference or whatever we regard as hierarchy is is really a uh, a result of of the differences of experience you know but that doesn't make one more or less important or uh, mm -hmm. or valuable than another individual you know it really has nothing to do with with your value as human beings you know, and I think that that departure for him was really important in creating a sense of transparency and and and, and honest exchange with the community he was working with. You know, and and it, and it was really one of the most successful uh, 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 literacy experiments that we know of. Mm -hmm. You know, Pablo, I think you've hit on something really important, which is the difference between equity and equality, actually, and how um, when confronted with difference, we need to modify ourselves and our own expectations of how how uh, people should be treated. It's super, super important. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's something where we get confused very quickly in art, you know. Um, there's a, uh, a, a maybe a, an impulse, you know, which is... Uh, 
very understandable of doing something democratically, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, inviting people to just participate in whichever way they want, you know. The way that I think it's done poorly, poorly is when, when basically, let's say, it's the children's mural format, you know, where basically say, like, anybody can do anything they want here, you know, and it's equally valid. So, so you, it becomes a free-for-all, you know, where anybody can do anything they want, and then the the process itself is um, might be fun or valid, you know, but the, really the the result is kind of a is basically a mess, you know. Well, I think people people sometimes, having been a participant in those situations, you sometimes don't feel like you know how you can contribute because it's everything is open, so your role is not clearly defined in that. Yeah, so I mean, I think that I, I would that the fault there will be the person who instigates the action who is who can't really understand the kind of value that this individual can bring into the thing you know basically you're just assigning them a random role mm-hmm. you know and then telling them you know do whatever you want you know and then you think that you have done your job simply by by giving them a paintbrush mm-hmm. uh and that's to me that's that's to me a uh, more like irresponsible or or you know, a way of acting where you know, it, it's not about that. You know, it's it's really about working with somebody to help them um, bring out the value that is within them. You know, that's that's to me the, the important aspect of education, and and that uh, successful educational uh, approaches, you know, are able to do that, and successful collaborations are able to do that as well to bring the best in each one of the participants, and that that this this best aspect of each participant is ex- exhibited later in the in the resulting uh, project. Um, so that actually brings us to our last question, which is something we like to ask all of our guests on The Secret Ingredient. We're at, we would like to ask you what The Secret Ingredient in art is. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I knew you were going to ask me that. And, um, <laughs> of course. And um, what, it's interesting. I, I Interestingly, I thought about my mom when you asked. Uh, <laughs> And mainly because you know my mom is a great cook, you know. It's the ingredients. But uh, but she of course learned cooking, like uh, a lot of people do, basically through experience, you know. And uh, and it's almost impossible to get her to tell you exactly how does she do this or that, cook this or that, you know. Basically, you know, how do you make these flour tortillas? And she's like, well, I'll just take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, you know, and then. And you, you're trying to measure it exactly, right? Like, well, how many grams of this? And she, and she already put it in there, you know? And then, like, so it, it sounds like a magician, you know, where you, you don't know how she managed to do it, you know? So um, I think this is, um, this is the, the, the trick with, uh, with basically asking for, like, a formula for making an artwork or making a project, you know? Like, there's no formulas, you know? Hmm. But... but um, so there, there's, no, there's no secret ingredients. It's whatever you have, you know. Um, and uh, but it's really, it's, it's really less about what you, what you have than what you do with it, you know. So what I would say is that it's all about, um, uh, it's all about this bit of intuition, and a massive dose of experience, mm. of that experience that you might have had. And and even if you're inexperienced, pulling upon that that experience that you do have, just tying back to what you were saying earlier about how um, 
hierarchy is usually about a difference of experience and has nothing to do with our value as human beings, that that, that difference of experience is inherently what makes uh, a work what it is. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and and you know, there's there's wonderful things that you can do with your with very simple experiences, you know. And yeah. That's why a lot of children do wonderful work. You know, mm-hmm. um, they they basically have an experience, and then they basically do something with it, and like their observations about it, they are, are particularly uh, meaningful. So, um, so yeah, so it's 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 not about all the books that you have read, you know, it's and putting them into into use. It's about like what you've got, you know, learning, learning what to do with it, knowing, knowing what to do with what you have. It's kind of lovely that we're talking about food because I think that that's, that's kind of how you cook, right? Like you see what you've got in your fridge or in your cupboard and, um, and see what you can do with it. You take what's at your disposal and make something amazing out of it. Exactly. So there's a, a famous, um, a uh, dish that actually is a Mexican dish, but people don't know it's Mexican. It's a Caesar salad, <laughs> you know. Uh, and the Caesar salad uh, has an interesting story. It was it was written. It was made by by a name by Cesar Cardini, who was a chef. Who um, one day, and this is, I, I believe maybe in the around the Mexican Revolution or so, he had a massive uh, group of people coming into his restaurant. You know, uh, soldiers. You know, and and basically they had nothing in the restaurant. You know. They they only had some like uh, uh, old bread. They had lots of lettuce or um, cheese, you know, Parmesan cheese. You know, and so he had to come up with something to feed everybody, and he came up with the Caesar salad. You know, hmm. so to me that that is really um, the the secret ingredient was uh, scarcity. Right. right. Yeah. You know, it was basically that he did not have enough. If he had had like any possible kind of uh, ingredient imaginable then he will come up with something I'm sure for these people but he will not have invented um, um, the, these, uh, these wonderful uh, like uh, dish that we all know now you know? Mm-hmm. that we all know and love Pablo thank you so much for, for being with us on the show today um, we would like to conclude the show with the first track off of a CD that you sent to me it's not the one we just heard and um, and actually I downloaded it onto my iPod and I don't know which CD it is anymore do you happen to know <laughs> this is a bit of a test so how many CDs have you released is it two how many how many CDs I have what? have have created of of your singing and your performing uh, maybe just a couple yeah so it's the um, it's not the one we just heard it's the other one um, and it's I the first track a, off of I that made a compilation of of uh, songs yeah. called a long long time ago that's, that's it. it yeah, yeah. so it's yeah. the and first track off of that CD um, that that um, basically it's it's a um, it's a CD of recordings um, made in different uh, recording styles, yeah. in other words, historical styles. So um, I think the um, the first was a in kind of in a phonographic yes, yeah, uh, recording. But um, that's the one. But uh, and I think that's it, it's. A, I think it's a French. Um, I think it's a French song. But Great. I can't remember which one it is. Okay, <laughs> thank you again for being with us and. Uh, we hope to talk to you sometime very soon. Thank you for you to you both, and uh, thanks for having me.
That was Pablo Helguera singing a traditional song for us, and uh, you've been listening to The Secret Ingredient. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Thanks Um, for listening. (laughs) 